following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. things that make me feel small as a man. One is being in the pulpit with Jeb Bland and John Light because they both are taller than I am. Another is going to my doctor to have myself, my, my height, you know, the little thing that comes over your head. From the time I was 15, I could truthfully say I'm six feet tall. Now they insist I'm 5'11". Gravity is winning. But the thing that makes me feel smallest of all is the Word of God. So many times I realize there's a message that I would not think to give. It wouldn't originate with me. I think that's the way the message of our text is today in John chapter 3. As we've read the wonderful verse and considered last week, John 3.16, I'm going to begin reading there again, but we have considered and said what I want to say about that verse last time. But I'll read on through verse 21, where the message isn't necessarily one that I would originate, but it's God's message. And I feel small and hope I'm small enough to be his messenger. We read in John 3, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is God's holy word. At least in high school literature, probably more likely in college, you may have encountered the name of Fyodor Dostoevsky as the author of Russian novels where everybody has an impossible-sounding name. Dostoevsky's books are somewhat difficult to read and penetrate, but they're worth the effort. He had a great biblical worldview. And particularly, the one I do know best is Crime and Punishment. Dostoevsky's story of a man called Raskolnikov, who we first meet as the story unfolds in Crime and Punishment as a desperately poor man, a former student without a job, who barely is able to scrape together money to eat. 
he happens to know an old pawnbroker, a woman who cheats and takes advantage of people who have to pawn their goods. And she, of course, makes money on others' misfortune. And Raskolnikov decides this is an unworthy person. Why should she live? Why should she be rich when a brilliant young man like me would be a better gift to the world? And so he kills the old pawnbroker and her sister who, who is, happens to be there and, and be in the way. So two murders were committed by Raskolnikov. Well, he rationalizes that he will use the money he steals from the pawnbroker to create some kind of a life of benefit to society, and then he moves into a period of apparent security. Nobody saw him do the crime, and he feels rather sure that he won't be caught. But finally, Dostoevsky, as a skilled novelist, weaves the plot, and you see people ask Raskolnikov questions, and and when they ask a question, he wonders, what did they mean by that? Do they know something? That, do, do they know what I did? And, and little things intersect his life to work against him until he gets more and more, you would say, paranoid that his crime is going to find him out so that in the end he actually confesses what he did, crime and punishment. His punishment had been stored up and, and didn't seem like it would ever appear, but it, it does come. Just as Numbers chapter 32 verse 23 has a verse I remember learning as a boy in Sunday school years ago. Be sure of it. Your sin will find you out. That verse used to scare me. It made me pretty sure that God was watching when I was twisting the truth or doing something that I thought nobody was seeing. Well, our sin will find us out certainly in the eyes of God who is judge of all, and that's part of the theme of our text today in John 3. There's really a very strong parallel between this part of John 3 and the first few chapters of Romans. If you remember the epic chapters there, Romans 1 through 3, that develops so unpleasantly to any reader, you have to say it. I mean, maybe you don't like me saying a part of the Bible is unpleasant, but if there's anything unpleasant, it's Romans 1 through 3.20, that writes the sentence of conviction upon humanity. Romans 1 showing us that humankind, every one of us, has rebelled against the knowledge of God, that we, there, uh, the basic knowledge was there, but we said, I won't have it, and we move on from there. Romans 3.10, just uh, compacting that development, says there, makes the conclusion and says, there's no one who's righteous, nobody. In all of humanity, there's nobody who can be called a naturally righteous man or woman. And then you come to the climax in Romans 3.19, which is like an imaginary courtroom drama, except the courtroom is the throne of God. And Paul, as he writes by the Holy Spirit, is inspired to see all of humanity assembled before the throne, the court of God, the ultimate judge on judgment day. And there are millions and millions and millions, even billions of human beings, if you can possibly see such a thing with your eye. And the text says, as all men are gathered, the scene will be this, unless God does something different, every mouth 
will be silent and the whole world will be held accountable to God. What awesome finality. Young people, you use the word awesome too lightly. It belongs on that scene. Awesome. All of humankind gathered before God and every excuse you've ever thought of, every defense you've ever thought might rationalize your conduct, your corrupt thoughts, your cruel words, your ungodly actions won't count for anything. Our mouths will be silent before God as condemnation is the inevitable ending of our human course if unaltered. Now, maybe you already sense this doesn't sound like an enjoyable subject, and that's why I said before, I need to be a small man in order to make sure I'm just a messenger and not deriving a message that is not fully from the words of God here and the words of Christ. But here is the biblical definition, once again, of human sin that we have to be reminded of. I think to understand man in sin, mankind in sin correctly, is just as important as it is when contractors are building a building to put that iron rebar in the concrete, in the form, so that when they pour the concrete, the iron reinforcing is in there. How essential that is. Any one of you who's ever built anything knows you don't just take mushy concrete and put it in a form and say, ah, I have a strong foundation. You may have a terrible foundation if it does not have reinforcing rods in it. The reinforcing rods of biblical truth and the gospel are a correct understanding of the sinfulness and the hopelessness of mankind apart from Christ. When you understand that correctly, you come to the gospel and you can respond and the gospel can do its work. When you understand that mankind made a fundamentally wrong choice before God and you repeat that choice in various ways every single day. And unless God would lift from you the consequences of that in an act of new birth, as our text has described, if you've been with us in John 3, a new transforming, regenerating act of the Holy Spirit of God that literally changes the course of our natural lives, if that occurs, things can be different. But if nothing changes, the course of our lives are awful because the condemnation that our actions against God deserve are upon us every single day. Last week we looked at John 3.16, that wonderful verse that speaks of the love of God expressed in Jesus Christ so that we might believe on Him and not perish. I didn't dwell very hard on the word perish, but that's a bad word, an awful word a word that means being cut off from God himself in eternity. And we have to stop now before we finish John 3 and look at verses 17 to 21 to see why this great work of Christ is so required. It's required because there's a woeful diagnosis about humanity here in our sinful nature as we are born and naturally come into this world And there's a condition that remains true of every man and woman unless the grace of God intervenes to change it. 
First then today I would have you look at verses 17 and 18. Maybe the pivot is verse 18 in many ways. To see the fact of condemnation today apart from Jesus Christ. Two crucial words are in this text. You can give them in either order. Condemned already or already condemned. They mean the same thing. Whoever does not believe in Christ, the text says, stands condemned already for he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Now, you know, at first glance, you might say this seems to clash with our American sense of civil justice. After all, don't our courts say you're innocent until you're proven guilty? And of course, if you have any background in the law at all, you know this. No matter how heinous appearing an individual may be, no matter how surly or rebellious he is when brought into court, you cannot make a prejudgment and say, ah, I know that man is guilty. No. Because human beings are inclined to presume that, the court has said they are innocent until proven guilty, until a mound of evidence and facts and logic can come together and eyewitness testimony and all these things can convict so that a judge or a jury can say, yes, the evidence is overwhelming. He deserves to be convicted and even perhaps to be condemned. But you see, the reason we need innocent until proven guilty is because human beings never know the facts in advance until everything's laid out on the table. But we're dealing with God, the all-seeing and all-knowing God whose knowledge of us is absolutely perfect, seeing every flaw, every little thing that we've ever done or said. And God has such an advanced knowledge of us that he knows far more than he needs to know to say about us what Ephesians 2, 3 says, that we were by nature objects of God's wrath. You don't like to think about that, do you? You say, well, I came to a church on a Sunday, good grief, you know, it's daylight savings time, spring is coming, and he's talking about the wrath of God on me. Jesus Christ is talking about it. This is his sentence. This is his conclusion. That human beings have turned from God in such a way that they are presently in this day, today, before they ever face that final judgment scene, condemned already unless something changes that. If you looked ahead to chapter 5, John 5, 29 has Jesus speaking again, and he talks about the final resurrection of all the dead. You know, there's the resurrection of the righteous to receive glorified bodies and be perfected before God, but there's also the general resurrection of all persons, the unbeliever. And Jesus predicts that in John 5, 29, as he says that unbelievers are eventually going to be resurrected. Why? I quote him, to be condemned, brought back to a body so that the body could receive condemnation. That is their final judgment before God. But here we have in John 3.18 the fact that they're already, that has already as good as happened for those who are apart from Christ. Well, this is getting unpleasant, isn't it? The root cause of this terrible state of affairs is, is said to be what? A failure to believe. They have not 
believed in the name of God's only Son, says the end of verse 18 here. What is the name of God's only Son? Jesus, Yeshua. His name means salvation, plain and simple. Did you ever think about the fact that the Bible says believe on the name of Jesus Christ? What does it mean to believe on someone's name? It means to put your trust in that which his name conveys by way of truth. What does the name of Jesus convey? He saves. Do you trust that he does that? That his name is truly applied to him correctly? And do you trust that he and no other can indeed do what his name says? You see, many people, and I think Christians are included in this, think that unbelief is just not such a bad thing. It's just sort of neutral. I often think of Switzerland, and I marvel at the country, a beautiful country, Switzerland, how it exists there in the center of Europe. With And in World War II days, it had Germany to its north and Italy to its south, the Axis powers, you know, bringing hatred and destruction on all of Europe. And in the middle of it all, there was little Switzerland right in the middle, neutral. No battles fought in Switzerland. If you could somehow escape to Switzerland, you would be in a place where you could take refuge in a neutral country. There are many people who think unbelief is like that, just a neutral state towards God and towards Christ. That is absolutely a mistake. Unbelief is nothing like living in Switzerland. Unbelief is a decision by default to stand against God. The Bible says it over and over. All we like sheep have gone astray, turning everyone to his to God's way? No, his own way. We've all turned to our own way. Unbelief is not a benign, harmless attitude. It is rebellion. It is unpardonable departure from God. You might say everyone that is not presently moving toward Christ as Lord by faith, is moving away from him. They're not standing on some neutral ground where they'll be left alone. The Bible says at the end of mortal life, if a man or woman will not believe in Christ as Savior, Lord, then the penalty of his sins remain upon his head. And if he persists in that until death, he cannot be saved because he is already condemned. Well, let's go on with this passage, a second step here into verses 19 and 20, and hear the motive behind this condemnation apart from Christ. Why, why is this so evident, or how is this so evident? Well, we read here something that, if you really think about it, should amaze you. This is the verdict that light has come into the world, but men loved darkness rather than light, for their deeds are evil. Now, This is sort of intensifying God's case. It's not just that, you know, people are sort of saying, well, I don't like God so much and I don't think I need Jesus. Uh, No, it's a very active, rebellious state of behavior. They are relentlessly preferring spiritual darkness when the light of Christ could be had. And of course, I'm not going into the fact that this gospel is going to call shortly Jesus the light of the world. We know what it's talking about when it says light has come. Christ himself, the revelation of God, all that God has done to make himself known is considered to be light. 
You know, I'm very glad in Lancaster County to live in a county, I, I mentioned earlier in the service, a county where abortions are not performed. We shouldn't be holy and sanctimonious about that, but it's a blessing. There's something else that's not very evident in Lancaster County. I don't know whether you know right off your hand what I'm thinking about, but you don't have to drive across the borders of this county too far in almost any direction to find it. Blatant, large, adult bookstores with huge billboard signs along the highways. Take Route 15 north up towards New York State, and you're confronted with them all over the place. It's so interesting to me how these things are built. So often in a a former gas station or some kind of a warehouse building like that, not much of a very nice-looking building. And what have they done in almost every case? They boarded the windows of the building, and then you've got adult entertainment. And did you ever ask yourself, why no windows? You ought to know. When people are ashamed, they want to dive for cover. When people are imbibing in behavior they know is wrong and they don't want others to see, they might park their car around the back somewhere to make sure the boss doesn't go by and see them park there or certainly that their wife doesn't see them park there. And they want to dig into the ground like a mole to partake of behavior that is shameful. I've seen pictures of fish and amphibious animals living deep in caves and caverns in the earth that have never seen any ray of sunlight. They live in total dark all the time. You've seen these pictures of albino organisms, frogs or salamanders, and they're completely white, and their eyes don't work. They're blind. They've never needed to work. For generations of that animal, those eyes have never seen light. You know, there are times when I think of some individuals who are about like that. They're like albino beings that so despise the light of God, the truth of God, the morality that God makes known in His Word. They live in a world and they dart into the darkness whenever they can. Here were the respectable leaders of the religious establishment of Jesus' day. And, uh, you know, they would parade the streets and people would say, oh, look at that man. Why, goodness, he has a Ph.D. Look at his robes. Why, look at him. He knows the law backwards and forwards and, and practices everything about it. Isn't he somebody of real moral and spiritual excellence? Well, listen, it was those very people that banded together. And when Jesus in a rough robe, not a doctor's robe, a man without their education, came among them. It was like a brilliant light of the sun shone upon them, and shadows were cast in all directions that they had never seen before. And these men were like some kind of a salamander from a deep cave that fled the light of the holiness and the perfection and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And they so fled him that they desired to extinguish him as a light that showed them for what they were. And those darkness dwellers preferred to kill Jesus in preference of being exposed, which allowing him to live would make them continually be exposed. Don't you find it bewildering, many of you? Hard to understand what's happening in our society? As we watch our culture being turned upside down and inside out in terms of matters of very basic morality, things that 
not just are a part of American tradition or law, or they're not our country alone, but in the whole Judeo-Christian tradition, extending back 4,000 years, have been basic assumptions of morality and natural law. And we look around, and all of a sudden, it's, it's almost like we're Rip Van Winkle awakening from some kind of a strange nightmare in our society, hearing the highest powers in our land, the highest courts in our land, the White House telling us that a morality which was once well accepted, not just because our scriptures tell it, but because 4,000 years of Western civilization said it, is actually wrong and needs to be turned inside out. And so if people have a same-sex attraction and say, I need to be married or I need to carry out my sexual interest and license as I desire to do it, and you Christians are bigots if you tell me differently? Some of us are saying, wait a minute. Who turned everything inside out all of a sudden? Who determined that something God has revealed and laws and social restraints that keep people from harming one another and harming the whole society are suddenly don't apply? But most of all, how is it possible that people suddenly love what God says is not right and turn and hate and snarl at God's revelation? Folks, we're not talking theory here. You all know we're talking about what is true around us every day. Mankind is not, by his nature, good. He doesn't simply need a little polishing up on the outside, a little burnishing by a better education or some kind of social program that will help him along. Here's the diagnosis of Scripture on mankind, and it's rough, and it's hard-edged. Jeremiah 17.9, the human heart is deceitful above all things and without cure. The Supreme Court can't cure it. President Obama can't cure it. The courts won't cure it. New laws won't cure it. It's beyond cure. The human heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, says the King James Version. Human beings are in the act of rejecting truth and loving what is not true, turning their faces away from the light of God's truth in Jesus Christ, and many, many, many people want nothing more than some dark hole to dive into and be left alone to do what they want. Well, folks, in so many words, Jesus is telling us in John 3 there's going to come a final day when judgment will assign an eternal place of midnight shadows to such people that will be terrible beyond their imagining, and they'll get what they want. Now let me address anyone here who fits into John 3.18. Whoever, in the words of John 3.18, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. I would be a fool to imagine I'm speaking to 700 people, every single one of whom believes that. Somebody here doesn't believe that. Somebody does not believe in the name of the Son of God, that He's Savior. Someone in the radio audience that will hear this message, certainly many perhaps, do not believe that. What does Jesus say about those people? They were already condemned. 
cut off from the life and beauty and joy and peace and eternal blessedness of seeing the face of God. But guess what? You need not remain in that situation. Because in the third place today, believing God's truth in Jesus Christ can bring anyone into the light of God's goodness and grace. Notice, let's just back up a second to verses 17 and 18 again. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. You see, the situation of human condemnation is reversible. And even if it's on your head today, it's reversible. Jesus, the righteous one, the only one who ever could be called righteous, died in the place of every unrighteous man or woman, and that's everybody in this room. He died in the place of my unrighteousness. Guess what? He was condemned for me. Once again, young people, that was awesome. Please use the word where it belongs. That was awesome. And the Gospel of John says over and over again, believe, 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 embrace with all your trust this act of God to put the perfect one in place of the imperfect one, to know that Christ, the righteous, stood for you, the unrighteous, and took the wave, the tidal wave of the wrath of God. And so now in the third place, John 3.21 says it in a somewhat unusual statement. Whoever does what is true comes into the light. That's an unusual way to describe faith in Christ. Coming into the light, doing what is true, is nothing but believing in Christ. Believing that, yes, he was called Savior for a reason, because he saves. And if you see that situation of condemnation and say, wait, I want to believe in him, I want to run to him, I want to tell him that all of a sudden I see this whole thing, you may do it. And then it will not say of you, condemned already. But God will say, not condemned. Earlier in the service, you heard Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Because by the Spirit we've been set free from the law of sin and death. You see, this is a permanent transaction when it happens. I know there are Christians who could sit in the church on Sunday and they say, oh, hey, I like the pastor's sermon. He convinced me that I was not condemned. But then on Tuesday something happens and they go, oh, how could I do that? I must be condemned by God. And then they come back the next Sunday, no, I'm no condemnation. Then the next Wednesday, oh, now I'm condemned. No! Once it has been said of you, no condemnation, that is God's verdict. And that verdict is never reversed. Never. Romans 8.31 says, if God is for us, who can possibly stand against us? It is God who justifies, who will condemn? Who? Who is going to stand up to God's verdict? Nobody. Who will separate us from this love of God? Back in 1988, I came to my 
new charge as a pastor in the Baltimore area and met a fine man. I counted him as a wonderful friend. Lewis Price was an attorney, a little older than myself. He had already practiced law for 20 years when I met him. I was impressed with him. Lou, he was a very likable man, obviously capable man, but I was very impressed when his wife one day made a casual remark and said to me, Michael, she said, Lou will never tell you this, but do you know he's practiced law 20 years and he's in, in the court almost every week. He's a trial attorney, not one of these guys who, you know, just fills out forms in the back room or something or does taxes. He was a trial attorney. She said, he has never lost a case. I was stunned. I didn't think it was possible to practice law for 20 years and, and be in court and never lose a case. Now, maybe he just selected his cases really well. I don't know. But I said to myself, if I ever really need an attorney, I want Lou Price. He hasn't lost. He's the only baseball player that's got a lifetime 1,000 batting average. Ladies and gentlemen, you who are in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, let me tell you about a defense attorney who has never lost a case in 2,000 years. Those who are out from under condemnation in Christ are out from under condemnation now and forever. No failure you can commit, no shameful downfall of yourself can ever remove you from his saving grip. The case for the prosecution is indeed great against you. And if God, by his renewing grace, does not give you that new birth that draws you to faith, awakens you to say, Jesus, be my Lord, be my defense attorney, then you are condemned already And you've heard about it today. But Charles Wesley never wrote anything finer with his 18th century pen than the line of the hymn that says, No condemnation now I dread, for Jesus and all in him is mine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim that crown through Christ my own. Believer, that is for you. That is for you. No condemnation. May you know that that is God's sentence written above your name. Our Father, these truths are at the same time threatening and wonderful. Threatening because we see a world condemned, a world loving untruth, a world loving what is wicked, what is against your will and your word. And we know this speaks a true thing, but wonderful because it promises something that we could not have devised for ourselves. So, Father, thank you for the cancellation of all condemnation for those who are in Christ. May there be one who discovers this in faith today or in coming days. We ask it for your praise. Amen.